we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. Well, it is good to be back. This is my third week here at Joliet First and our third week and final week in this series, Tell the Town. And I know there's been a lot of sickness and weather issues, and we're going to just kind of review what's happened the last two weeks leading up to this week. We've been taking a look at what Jesus um, told us about sharing our faith the way he intended and in ways that can impact our entire town. And we've been using three simple words. You saw them on the screen. Reach was our first week, and share was the second week. And this week, as we experienced and saw, we're going to talk about the word repeat. You see, in order to even have an opportunity to share our faith, we have to start by reaching out, by reaching out of our close, comfortable circle and build intentional relationships and friendships, one conversation at a time, over time. It takes time. And to do that, we have to leave our front porches. We have to build friendships and relationships with people that we live near, that we work with, But before we do that, we need to be sure that when we reach out, we're doing it from a position of humility. And what I mean by that is we reach out remembering how deeply we needed Jesus and how encountering him has changed our lives. And when we remember that need, that's when we're ready to begin to share And this isn't a new idea um, in any way. Jesus was clear with his followers as he talked with them at the end of his ministry. He commissioned them. He sent them out on a mission to go and tell everything that they had seen and heard while following him. And each week we've been starting with this passage passage of scripture written uh, by the writer of the book of Matthew. And he recorded this amazing conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. We're going to look at it again right now. Jesus said in that moment, God has authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. And I will be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up to the end of the age. And they did. After the resurrection, something changed. The pieces all came together, and they were convinced that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they were compelled to share what they had seen and heard. And if we claim to follow Jesus... This is our commission, too. This is our mission as well. And we know that there have been a lot of books and a lot of articles written about how to share our faith. But the reality is, the story of what Jesus has done in you and me is what people want to hear and see. That's it. That's what matters most. And it sounds really simple. And sometimes it is simple. 
But most of the time, it's a lot more complicated than that. And it requires a lot of us. It requires a lot of time, and it requires a really big investment. And I wonder this morning if anyone in this room has ever attempted a DIY project in your home. I'd love to see your hands. Yes. Um, you saw something in your home that needed to be fixed or restored. And so if you're like me and my husband, we begin by going to YouTube. And we pull up YouTube channels of people who've done these kind of projects before, and we watch and we watch and we watch, and we throw some out um, because it's pretty obvious they have no idea, obvious that they have no idea what they're doing. Um, we might pull up some This Old House articles. I might look on Pinterest. And then usually we create a list and we head to Home Depot or Lowe's and we walk through that store with our cart and end up paying a lot more than we ever imagined we would. And we go home and we begin that project and it seems like about 30 minutes later we realize we need to go back to Home Depot and get something else and we need to ask another question and then we go back home and we dig into the whole restoration project again and it ends up taking a whole lot more time than we ever imagined. Well in my family we have this really strange Christmas tradition. Um, I call it a Christmas tradition because it's something we tend to do on Christmas, but it's really not connected to the birth of Jesus in any way, shape, or form. It just so happens that Christmas seems to be a time when we think about doing this, and that's embarrassing anyway. Um, but my son-in-law tells me that that's really the definition of insanity, not tradition. It's, you know, that definition of insanity where you do the same dumb thing over and over and over. That's what we do. Well, this year on Christmas Day, we ripped out my daughter's kitchen. Um, and I'm going to confess that this is the third family kitchen that we ripped out on a Christmas Day. Why? I don't know. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't even a spontaneous impulse. We actually planned ahead to do this. We talked to one another for weeks ahead of time, and that makes it a little more embarrassing for me to confess. Um, my daughter was five months pregnant at the time with their first baby, and the plan was that it would be finished by the end of February, so then they would have a little bit of time to rest and move into the cabinets and get ready for the baby to come. Sounds great. Um, my son did some CAD drawings on his computer to kind of lay out the kitchen. They had purchased all the appliances the year before. They got a great deal in the after Christmas sales. And we all happened to have some consecutive days off of work. And there were a lot of us in the house, so we had lots of bodies to help. And really, what could go wrong in the remodel of a kitchen in an 80-year-old home, right? Um, so we worked sun up to sundown, really way past sundown, actually. Um, I could hardly walk. I could hardly move. And we gutted it down to nearly the studs until it was time for us to head back to Illinois. And honestly, when we left, we felt pretty good about the progress we'd made. And we left them there with this temporary kitchen set up in their dining room. They had this little two burner hot plate and they were washing their dishes in the small half bath sink. And um, the walls were ready for drywall. 
The cabinets had been ordered, countertops they had chosen, and they had a sink chosen. Sounds pretty straightforward. Well, when we visited them this weekend for my daughter's shower, she's now seven weeks away from delivery. Guess what? They still have a temporary kitchen set up in their dining room. They're still washing dishes in the small half-bath sink, but the walls are up. And they're drywalled, or they're mudded and sanded, and they've been painted. And the cabinets are beginning to go in, and there's a wall that's been taken down between the kitchen and the dining room, so it's a really nice open concept if you watch TV like I do. Um, And while it's nowhere done, nowhere near done, it's a lot closer than it was before. It looks so simple when we watch it on television. And this weekend when I was there, I was feeling really guilty and I was thinking, well, maybe we should have never started. But I remembered why we started. The cabinets were falling off of the soffit. And one day when my daughter was cooking, a whole cabinet fell down on the stove. We needed to get to work. That kitchen needed restored. And I I wondered if maybe the real issue is um, that we've come to expect instant results, quick results. And we expect too much of what we do to be easy and straightforward. And the greater truth is a lot of things simply take a long time and they're difficult. But our instant outcome mindset has impacted our thinking about so many things, about diets and health and getting out of debt and when we should get a job promotion. And from the moment, a long time ago, when our lives became automated, we've come to expect that all of life works, like a YouTube video, or a 30-minute DIY program, or our microwave. And it's definitely impacted the way we think about our faith. We expect God to resolve the issues in our lives in the same time frame that it takes for Chip and Joanna to say, here's your fixer-upper, right? And we love quoting verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. But we never read verse 10 right before that, that says after 70 years. And I think our instant outcome mindset has impacted the way we engage in sharing our faith. I think we've really begun to struggle in investing in relationships for the long haul, for the amount of time it truly takes to earn the right to speak about things that matter, to influence, to teach, to disciple. And we get discouraged and sometimes even angry when someone doesn't respond the way we think they should. And we're guilty of treating people like objects and sometimes even walking away or kind of distancing ourselves when they don't receive well the message that we share. And I don't think that's what Jesus intended at all. You see, the truth is, as we seek to be great commission followers of Jesus, most of the time, it's going to take a really long time. We share, and we share again, and we cultivate. We turn over the soil, so to speak. There's a lot we have to repeat. We say it again. We do it again. We go through it again over the course of time, and we trust God with the outcome, believing that he's at work. 
There's a man who attends the church where I attend, where I work. And his name is Walt. And Walt shared his story of coming to faith several years ago at an event that I attended. He grew up as a young boy in a home that was traumatized by an alcoholic father. Close to his home was a church. And a man in that church reached out to his family, visited the neighbors. And his parents didn't want anything to do with coming to church, but they would allow that man to walk down the sidewalk, get Walt, and walk Walt back to church, to Sunday school every week. And week after week, that man did the same thing over and over and over again. And over the course of time, Walt learned about Jesus' love for him and his grace for him. And his life was transformed, and he became a great commission follower of Jesus. And if we fast forward a lot of years, Walt became a dad, and he had a teenage son. And, and one of his son's friends was at the home, and Walt realized in this young man's story that maybe he should share his story of faith. And so he did. And that led to an invitation to come to church with them. And Walt and his wife built bridges of connection for that young man into the community of faith. Um, he started attending our youth group. He went on a mission trip. But Walt didn't pass him off to the church. Walt continued to invite him to their home, to share meals together, to, to talk with him, to mentor with him, to encourage him, to include him. And that young man came to faith. And he plays in our worship band now, and he helps with our media. And now his family has begun to attend church many, many, many years later. And I wonder if that man who walked the sidewalk from that church and walked Walt to church every Sunday realized the impact or the ripple effect of his obedience. And that's a good story. I could stop right there and we'd say, that's a great story. But it's not the end. You see, Walt has continued to repeat that lifestyle over and over again. And several weeks ago, he called our church office. He wanted to let us know he was bringing his new neighbors to church. He told us they had small children, and he wanted to make sure we were going to be ready to welcome them. And I love that. You see, when you invest in a relationship and you get to know someone's story, it matters to you if your church is ready for them to come. You don't take that lightly. It's a very vulnerable position to be in, to share your faith, to share your life with someone, and then invite them into this community of faith. So I love that he called us and said, hey, they're coming. They're bringing their kids. And so a few Sundays ago, we welcomed them. We helped them check their children into our toddler and nursery room. We explained some simple things that we take for granted, like the fact that all our volunteers go through a background check and they go through training because all they knew about churches is what they had seen on the news. And the news isn't really good about what's happening to kids in churches in our day and age. So I love that Walt felt comfortable inviting his new neighbors into our community of faith. And he was confident that we would be accepting. You know what? That family is a Buddhist family. He knew that they could find a place to belong even before they believed. 
And this story continues to unfold. And one of the neat things about this story is that every time Walt has reached out to someone new, we watch him grow incredibly passionate, to grow incredibly excited as he walks that journey of that person's experience with Jesus. It's like he experiences all over again the joy he felt when he came to know about the love and the grace of Jesus. And his faith comes to life in brand new ways. And the same thing happens in a church when people begin to experience the transformation that Jesus brings. And if we want to fulfill together Jesus' great commission, it's only going to happen when we all take the responsibility that Jesus has given us to reach and to share and commit to journey with someone over the long haul, over the course of time, like that pastor did for Walt and like Walt is doing with his new neighbor. Because as great commissioned people, we reach and we share and we do it again, right? Well, there's something else that's pretty important as we think about this word repeat. Repeat doesn't just mean to do the same things again and again. There's another part of that definition of that word that I think really is relevant. You see, it also means to say what someone else has said, to repeat them. We need to make sure that we're repeating what Jesus said. And that sounds really obvious, but we've got to remember it's his mission and it's his message and he's invited us to join him. And we need to make sure we're getting that message right. When Jesus shared this great commission, he told his followers to reach and share, but also to instruct those who come to faith in the practices that he had commanded. Repeat what I have taught you. If you were here last week, we talked about um, how Paul came to faith and, an, and a man named Ananias walked alongside him. Ananias helped Paul work out his new faith in Jesus, and he helped build a bridge for Paul into that community of believers. Um, many of them would not have been very receptive to Paul coming into their community. He was not a safe person in their minds. But Ananias helped go before Paul and build that bridge, a lot like Walt did, calling our church saying, hey, he's coming. Will you welcome him? Will you accept them? And within that community, the words and teachings of Jesus were repeated as they instructed Paul, as they filled him in on everything that Jesus had commanded. We know, we've heard, we've seen Jesus was an incredible teacher. And Jesus' followers sat under his teaching for about three years, and they observed his ministry for that time as well. He said a lot of things. He did a lot of things. And so as Paul sat in that community of faith, I wondered what teachings of Jesus did they repeat? What did they focus on? And I think if we're going to be accurate in repeating what Jesus said, we need to think about that question again. The evangelist John recorded a scene that I think could help us think about that question. It took place during the Passover meal that Jesus was sharing with his disciples right before he was betrayed and crucified. 
You see, Jesus had just entered Jerusalem with his disciples, and he entered to crowds lining the streets and cheering. He entered like a celebrity because they believed he was about to seize power, to power up and become their king, to establish himself as their king. And as he and his disciples gathered in the room that they had reserved for their Passover meal, the disciples were caught up in that excitement. They were kind of processing what they had just experienced, and I can imagine they were pretty hyped up. They were pretty excited about being so celebrated. And they began to talk about this new kingdom they believed Jesus was going to establish, and they started talking about who was going to be his right-hand man as vice president, if you will. And in most households, there would have been a servant to wash the grime off their feet as they sat down for that meal. And they weren't wealthy enough to have a traveling servant, so I'm guessing that as they traveled, the disciples would take the turns being the guy who washed the grime off of everyone's feet so they could enjoy their meal together. And in that moment, no one thought of taking the servant's towel and beginning to wash the feet because they were talking about their new positions, right? And I, I almost can imagine that they were sort of humming the melody to We Are the Champions. I don't know. I, if, I, if I play it out like a movie scene, you know, they really are kind of wrapped up in their importance. And it's at this point that John, the evangelist, begins to record Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So he got up from the table, from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he goes on, that when he finished, Jesus asked them a really, really pointed question. Do you know what I've just done for you? You see, you call me teacher and Lord, which is a very high honor, and that is what I am. So if I, the teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And right there, in that moment, Jesus took his red pen and he began to draw a very thick circle around the main idea. Everything before that and everything after that should be viewed through the lens of those moments that they were sharing and were about to share. And a few minutes later, after demonstrating that main idea, he spoke it plainly. Later, in verses 34 and 35, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And I'm going to state the obvious again. People knew they were his followers because he was, they were with him. They were following him. But Jesus was making it clear that as he left, as he was crucified, as he was resurrected and then ascended to the Father, returned to the Father, that as he knelt with that servant's towel, from that point forward, the only proof there would be of their connection to Jesus would be how they loved each other. And this was huge. You see, they were accustomed to living 
lives, trying to prove their love and devotion to God through keeping the law. And the law wasn't easy to keep. It was long. It was detailed. And the average Joe struggled to even know everything that it said. And there were even laws made about how to keep the laws. And that became a heavy weight on their shoulders. And Jesus stops and says, I'm giving you a new command. One. One command. And he took the posture of a servant and washed their feet. And then told them the proof of their love for God would be their love for one another. And that's what they began to repeat. And if we read and read through the rest of the New Testament, the story of those first followers on mission, we'd see those those words repeated in a bunch of different ways as they instructed new believers in the practices of all that Jesus had commanded. You see, loving one another looked a lot like forgiving one another the way Jesus had forgiven them. And it looked a lot like accepting one another, people who are different than we are, as Jesus had accepted all of them. And it looked like caring for one another the way Jesus had cared for them and encouraging one another as Jesus had been their encouragement and submitting to one another in the same way that Jesus had submitted so clearly to the Father and to each of them, and restoring one another as Jesus had restored them in their failure, carrying one another's burdens, walking as Jesus had walked with them and carried their burdens, and bearing with one another as Jesus had been so patient in dealing with their immaturity. I think his words are worth repeating again. A new command I give you, love one another. In the same way that I've loved you, so now you need to love one another. And this is the way everyone will know you belong to me if you love each other. I read a book recently by some well-known researchers who've taken a look at the state of Christianity in our nation Specifically, they've asked some key questions of people who claim no faith in Jesus at all about their perception of Christians. The perceptions they found of Christians today have become kind of linked with a laundry list of things that Christians are against. It's become synonymous with political arguments and political parties and things that Jesus never spoke of or intended. And it resembles nothing like Jesus' demonstration of love and service as he washed their feet. But I want you to know that early in the history of our faith, Jesus' first followers, these newly commissioned people of the way, began reaching and sharing and repeating what Jesus said. And they lived together by the law of love, and they lived a version of faith that was winsome and attractive. And I've been wondering this week and the weeks before as I've been preparing, what would it look like if we reclaimed that kind of faith? What if we, as individuals and as a church, said yes again to Jesus' great commission? 
What if we committed to building authentic relationships with our neighbors? What if we committed to telling people about the difference Jesus has made in our lives? And what if we began again to repeat Jesus' big idea that loving one another is the big idea, the way he demonstrated his love for us? And as I was thinking about wrapping up this time that we've had together, um, I was thinking about some questions in my own heart and mind. And I wonder if you would pause for a moment and think about the three words that we've used during this series. Reach, share, and repeat. I've spent a lot of time this weekend traveling, and I've been watching the GPS on my phone and seeing my little pretend car kind of follow the map to my destination. And if these words were the map and you were that little car, where would you place yourself on those three words? I thought about them a lot this week. And I think that I would place myself on the word reach. You see, throughout my life as a follower of Jesus, I have reached and shared and repeated a lot. But my husband and I have gone through some really big changes in our lives. You see, our kids now are grown. We spent the majority of their childhood and their teen years on athletic fields, sitting in lawn chairs, getting to know other parents and sharing our story of faith with the people that we sat with at all those games over all those years. And we've moved out into the country so we don't have neighbors close by. So gone are the days of raking and mowing and talking over the driveway. And I knew those things could not be an excuse in my life. And a few months ago, I began to pray and ask God, to help me find a new place to reach and to share in my community. I looked for opportunities to serve, and there were some doors that opened for me to help write a mental health grant for our county. And we got that grant. And through a series of events, I became a team leader for one of the groups that's working to implement that grant in our county. And that team comes through the doors of our church every other week, to my office where we meet and we plan and we work together. And I'm having one conversation at a time with the folks that I'm getting to know. And we're working together and we're sharing our personal stories as we do that work together. And I'm expectant that God is already at work. In fact, he was already at work before I ever met them. And here's what I know for sure. Those people that serve with me on that team need to see me live out Jesus' law of love. And they need me to look a whole lot more like those first followers of Jesus. And I was thinking about all of you. I was thinking about the fact that your neighbors and your coworkers need to know a Jesus follower that looks a whole lot more like those first followers of Jesus. And I wonder if you're willing for it to be you. And as you all begin your new journey as a church in a new location, I, I drove there last week, that building is surrounded by homes. You have tons and tons of new neighbors. And your neighborhood and your town 
desperately need to experience a church that is for them, living out Jesus' law of love in ways that they can see and touch and experience again and again and again. And I'm wondering today, are you willing to be that church? There's a prayer that I often pray as I think about what I've read in scripture and as, what, as I think about what God is teaching me. It's on, your, on the card that you received when you were walking in. And the one another's that I talked about, forgiving, accepting, caring, encouraging, submitting, restoring, carrying, bearing one another's burdens are all there. But right under that, there's a prayer that I pray. It's based on a prayer of the psalmist. And I'll often say, Father, search my heart, know my anxious thoughts, and put my thoughts and actions on trial. That's scary, because I'm so good at making excuses about why I live in the country, God. I can't reach out to anyone. I have no neighbors. God, I work at a church. I don't have coworkers that need to know Jesus. And as I've put those thoughts and those excuses on trial, his Holy Spirit has gently led me and taught me and helped me and encouraged me. So I wonder, before we pray this morning, would you be willing to ask God to search your heart, put your thoughts on trials, your thoughts on trial? How is it with your reaching? How is it with your sharing? And have you been guilty of ignoring the one another part of all that you were taught and of all that Jesus wants you to share with others? And if people looked at how you lived out the one another's, would they see evidence that you're his disciples, that you belong to him? So I want to give you a moment just to look at that card and think about those things just for a moment, and then I'll pray. I wonder if we head into this week, if you would join me in praying this prayer every day. Father, search my heart, put my thoughts and actions on trial, and help me, God, to reach and share and repeat the way you intended. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these moments. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word does search our heart, that it does put our thoughts and actions on trial, but we also thank you, God, that you are a restoring God and that your grace is equally as great as the truth that kind of pierces um, our excuses. So I thank you for the way that you restore us when you point out things in our life that need to change. I thank you for how you've done that for me. Lord, I pray that we would live lives of confession, that we would live lives of constantly seeking your way and your will. Lord, I thank you for the moment right now 
um, where this church stands. I thank you for the neighbors that surround their new building. And Lord, I pray that you would call us all again to your great commission, to living out the law of love and being the people who look like you by the way that we love. We thank you and we ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.